Welcome to the Insights Podcast on the Huddle Network. I'm Don Mills. Uh, David Campbell's away this week on a well-earned uh, break. And uh, today we take a look at the critical role of think tanks in society. Uh, it's probably not a topic that many people think much about, but uh, let's start with answering a simple question. What are think tanks? Think tanks are publicly public policy research and engagement organizations that enable policymakers and the public to make uh, more informed decisions about public policy. Simply put, think tanks attempt to bridge the gap between knowledge and policy. And there are a variety of different types of think tanks uh, in the world. The vast majority provide arm's length independent advice to policymakers and the public and use both applied and basic research to support their policy recommendations. You might be surprised to know that there are more than 11,000 think tanks around the world. Uh, there are two different types, uh, main types of think tanks, those which are affiliated with universities, political parties, or government bodies, and those which are uh, independent. There are the ones that are uh, autonomous and in independent rely on no single interest group for funding and are uh, autonomous in operations or funding from government. There are quasi-independent think tanks that are, are autonomous from government but dependent on specific interest groups or donors for funding. And they tend to look at a wide range of public policy issues, including healthcare, education, domestic and international development, the environment, energy and natural resources, foreign policy and international affairs, science and technology, uh, social issues that include food and water security, as, a as well as defense and uh, national uh, security. Uh, so obviously, uh, a lot of those uh, impact our daily lives and are important to how Canadians um, uh, live. The United States has the largest number of uh, think tanks, more than 2,200 at last count, followed by China. There are currently 85 think tanks in Canada. Probably the most uh, well-known include C the C.D. Howe Institute, the Fraser Institute, the Institute for Public Policy Research, the Conference Board of Canada, the Montreal Economic Institute, the McDonald Laurier, Laurier uh, Institute, in our own region, the Atlantic Institute of Market Studies. I should disclose uh, that I was a two-time board member of Ames, uh, and uh, most recently the vice chair for Nova Scotia. Uh, Ames was founded in the early 90s by its founding CEO, Brian Lee Crowley, who is currently the CEO of the McDonnell Laurier Institute in Ottawa. Uh, Ames uh, is supported by donations, funded research projects, and paid events. Over the years, Ames has produced a significant amount of public policy research focused entirely on Atlantic Canada. Despite the mo modest budget, the use of external research and re experts has allowed Ames to punch well above its weight in terms of its public policy research. In July of 2020, uh, Ames emerged with the Fraser Institute with the commitment that there would continue to be a focus on public policy research in Atlantic Canada. You might be interested to know uh, of the 11,000 plus think tanks in the world, the Fraser Institute was ranked among the best think tanks, number 14 globally, in the world by the University of uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, which has been producing their think tank index since 2006. The top-ranked think tank in the most recent index was the U.S.-based Brookings Institute, 
Uh, like the Brookings Institute, the Fraser Institute is considered to be a center of excellence for public policy research in the world. Uh, like most other top-ranked institutes, the Fraser Institutes relies on a peer review process, the vet research using an editorial advisory board of leading international scholarships. Indeed, the Fraser Institute is ranked among the top 20 in the world for its quality and, and integrity policies and procedures. And, and by the way, ranked 11 in the world as an independent think tank. In our conversation, uh, which follows with Niels Weilthaus, who is the C, uh, president of the Fraser Institute, talk to him about uh, the work being produced by Ames, um, whose brand remains in use, by the way. The research that is uh, part of uh, the Fraser Institute's Atlantic Canada Prosperity Project, focusing on three most recent studies. Um, I think it's important that we talk about this uh, topic, and it's, it's important not just for the public sector, but the private sector and the public, obviously, uh, I believe supporting think tanks, especially those with a regional focus, is critical to ensure the availability of independent policy advice and alternatives to policymakers. Um, by the way, the research that from think tanks like Fraser and Ames is generally available to the public. I would encourage Atlantic Canadians to access this research and become better informed about the public policy choices facing our region. Whether or not you happen to agree with the conclusion of that research, it's important to be informed, to have better public policy, and to put more pressure on polit politicians to deliver better public policy. So here is my interview with Niles uh, Weidhaus, who is the president of the Fraser Institute. On today's Insight podcast, we are pleased to be joined by Niles Weilthaus, uh, the president of the Fraser Institute, Canada's leading think tank for public policy research, and recently recognized as among the top 15 uh, think tanks in the world. And that's quite an achievement when you think that there's over 11,000. Uh, Niles, uh, welcome to, the, to our podcast. Yeah, thanks, Don. Uh, thanks for having me, and uh, thanks for everything you do to encourage debate on really important public policy issues. I'm Delighted to be on the program and uh, share any insights uh, that I have on uh, the state of policy in Canada and uh, in Atlanta, Canada. Yeah, well, I think we're going to have a good conversation. Uh, maybe we can start with your background. <clears throat> uh, maybe you can tell us about the path that led you to your current role as president of the Fraser Institute. Yeah, uh, happy to do so, Don. I uh, Like most people's lives, mine has been a bit of a random walk. Uh, you get opportunities and, and you take them. Uh, I was really fortunate. Um, I was not a good student in high school. I went to a community college and um, I uh, met a professor there who uh, was in economics, really opened my view uh, to the world around me and to thinking very differently than I had before. Uh, and the same thing happened when I transferred to Simon Fraser University. I had a professor there who really took me under his wing. He happened to be a senior fellow of the Fraser Institute. So many years later, after I had graduated and I had my own consulting company, he uh, he reached out and, and said uh, it would be a good place for me. And so I, I went uh, and that was 20 years ago and I've uh, been loving it ever since. Uh, so it, uh, it's been a big part of my life and uh, hopefully it continues to be a big part of my life. Yeah, so let's begin our conversation by finding out uh, more about the Fraser Institute and its mandate. Uh, maybe you can outline the what the Fraser Institute does and why its work is important to Canadians. 
Yeah, it's, um, I, I really think we are, the, the Fraser Institute is one of Canada's most important institutions. We, you know, our, our goal is quite simple. We, we want a better Canada. We want Canada to be the beacon of hope and opportunity, uh, both for those in Canada currently, but also for people around the world. And to us, it's, it's not good enough to be 20th. It's not good enough to be 10th. We constantly have to be striving for number one. We, have, we really want Canada to have the highest standard of living it can possibly have. And, you know, I think when you ask your friends and your family, what does that actually mean? What does it mean to have a really high standard of living? Uh, I think you're going to get a whole bunch of different responses. Uh, but I think the, the there's kind of an overall uh, consensus that people want a robust opportunity. They want a robust economy so that there's lots of opportunity to build a better life than their parents have had. They want great education to do that. Uh, they want people to have the same opportunity in life. So great education, regardless of your background. Same thing with healthcare. Uh, I think Canadians largely want the best healthcare system in the world, one in which uh, people can gain access without regard to their background or their current economic circumstances. I think people are really concerned about the environment. You know, how do you create a, a great environment for the next generation? People are concerned about the economy they're leaving the next generation. People obviously want free time to spend with their with their friends and their family. And so with all of those goals, we know that governments can really help Canadians get to that end. Uh, and we know that governments can detract Canadians from getting to those ends. And so for us, it's always been a question of how do you structure government policy in a way that creates all the wonderful things that Canadians want, that really high standard of living. And that's what we're about. We're about trying to educate Canadians about what government policies are going to get us there and what government policies might hurt us in getting there. And so the way that we do that is, is through measurement. You know, we don't come at the world from a philosophical point of view. I don't argue from a philosophical point of view. Uh, I ask questions. I gather data. I let the data answer the questions. And when the data changes, then obviously my opinions are, are going to change. And I, I think that's a real discipline. It's a really hard discipline for, for, for people, even really serious analysts and economists, uh, to make sure they always abide by. But that's the principle that we've stood by for the last, well, now almost, uh, well, over 45 years. Uh, and uh, it has served us very well. And we continue to try and educate Canadians about uh, how to improve this country. What is the governance model for the Fraser Institute, Niles? Yeah, we're, we're a really unique organization. We're 100% we're independent. Um, it, it's just a real pleasure to, to work here, first off. And we have a, a whole group of really young scholars that come from all over the world. I think almost half of our, our, our team is, uh, is first-generation Canadians. And I think one of the great things about being here is there's no one telling us what to do. Uh, really, our board doesn't tell us what to do. Our supporters don't tell us what to do. We are a completely independent think tank. So we ask questions. Uh, and uh, then we go off and we research those questions. We, we get data and we let data uh, tell us what the answer is. And, you know, I, I think one of the really great things is, so I'm the president of the Fraser Institute. Once we ask a question, you know, once I ask one of my senior fellows, well, what is the state of healthcare in, in Canada? And they go off and measure it. I can't intervene if I don't like the answer to that. That study, if it goes through our peer review process, is going to be published, whether I like it or don't like it. And that's really what independence is. It's about asking a question and then uh, allowing the researcher to uh, research it, look for the data, 
and answer the question and put that out there. Um, and people aren't always going to agree. <laughs> you know, we're trying to encourage people to, to have debates, to gather their, their own data. Uh, and um, we're always willing to have a real disciplined response to, to, our, to our research. So the governance model uh, of the Fraser Institute really is all about ensuring independence, ensuring independence from the board, from management, from supporters, to ensure that our researchers can go out and answer questions. Yeah, to, to that point, it's my understanding that the Institute accepts no government funding or contracts for research in order to re- maintain your independence. How does the Institute fund its operations? Yeah, we're, we're 100% funded by voluntary contributions. And it's it's kind of an odd funding model, Don. And we don't take any government grants. We, we would be a lot bigger if we did, believe me. It would be a lot easier just to go to government and say, can you support this? And I think a lot of governments would. Um, but we don't do that. Uh, we're 100% nonpartisan. Uh, we, we don't engage in any sort of political uh, discussions. Uh, and so we're funded by individuals. Uh, we're funded by organizations. We're funded by family foundations uh, across the country. And these people give us uh, support because they like what we do. They want to see debate and research on public policy issues. And they will continue to support us and have a long history with us uh, because they really love the work that we do. They don't direct the work that we do in any way, but they really understand that we're an important part of the fabric of this country, trying to promote a better Canada. And, you know, we have we have individuals that give us $20 a year, <laughs> right up to individuals who give us substantially more than that, of course. Um, but, uh, but we have wonderful supporters uh, and they don't ask for anything in return other than they just really like the debate that we create in the country and they really like the pressure that we create, I think, uh, to uh, to create a better Canada. Uh, does the Institute conduct, uh, conduct any contracted research for non-government clients? Uh, and if so, can you give us a few examples of this type of research? Yeah, we, we stray away. And again, we could be multiple times bigger if we did contract research. There's, there's lots of uh, groups and businesses and governments that would love to contract with us uh, to do research. We don't do any contracted research. Um, we really internally determine our own research plan uh, and then um, we, uh, we we go ahead and do that research. And again, uh, supporters support us because they love the research that we do and they don't have any stake in uh, in the outcome of that research. Uh, and you know when you start getting into um, when you start getting into uh, contract research, and a lot of organizations do this, I, I think it muddies the water quite frankly, uh, in terms of being independent. And so we we've stayed away from that and, and we'll continue to stay away from that. At the Fraser Institute, you use a peer review process with an editorial advisory board of leading international scholars to ensure the quality of your research. Can you tell us why that process is so important to your work? First of all, Don, you know, we don't want to make mistakes. And I don't I don't think any researchers want to make mistakes. And so we tried really hard and everyone makes mistakes, of course. Uh, you know, every, everyone occasionally is going to make a mistake. We have a a peer review policy uh, to protect us, really, to protect our researchers. And what that means is uh, once our researchers conduct a piece of research, uh, they they, uh, go through peer review. We have uh, one person internally review it. And then we have two people external to the Fraser Institute. We we call that double blind. So they don't know who the author is and the author doesn't know who the reviewers are. Uh, And that's the same standard that an academic journal uh, would use. And all of that is intended to make sure that we're doing the highest quality research that we possibly can and to find any mistakes that happen prior to the publication uh, of, of the research. And 
uh, again, I, you know, we're, we're internationally uh, known for the quality of our research and the integrity uh, of our research. And I think a big part of that is our independence and our on our review process. And so, um, you know, occasionally over the course of our 45 year history, uh, an author has not agreed uh, with one of the reviewers. Uh, and that's why we have an editorial advisory board. Uh, they adjudicate disputes between reviewers and authors. And we've had Nobel Prize winners on that board. And so it's something we take very, very seriously. The Fraser Institute is often uh, characterized by its critics as being a right-wing organization. What is your response to such criticism, Miles? Yeah, Don, I, I've been uh, I've been labeled a whole bunch of things over the course of my career, and, <laughs> and so has the Fraser Institute. And you know, what pe- people are always going to label uh, and attack uh, other people because of the opinions they have. I think it's really unfortunate. Um, I, I I make a real effort to educate our young scholars that you never attack or label anybody else for the positions that they have. You can attack their data. And you can attack their research, and that's great. And we encourage that, actually, uh, with respect to our research. But we're not going to label people. I think labeling, uh, to be quite frank, is uh, is is a, a cheap way uh, to uh, to try and uh, judge or, or make judgment about someone's research. Um, so yes, we've been labeled as conservative. We've been labeled as, as right wing. We've been labeled all kinds of things. Um, but at the end of the day, we're a research organization. We study. We collect data. We're empirical. We're 100% nonpartisan, and we just want a better Canada. And so, look, if, if a conservative government puts in place policies that uh, our research suggests will lead to better outcomes, I'm going to cheer. If the same government uh, puts in place uh, policies that are detrimental, uh, we're going to be out there holding that government responsible. And I will say the same thing for a liberal government and the same thing for an NDP government. And I, I think over the course of our conversation here, uh, we're going to highlight some some uh, some important policy decisions that NDP governments have made that have been wonderful, uh, and some we're going to highlight some policy decisions that conservative governments have made uh, that have been really detrimental. And uh, and so we try to stay kind of above the fray of politics, and let's just uh, advocate for great policy, uh, and uh, we'll fight back against uh, people who label us. And I think over time, what what that has shown me is if you just stick to the research. If you're a decent human being and respect uh, everyone and really come from the position that everyone wants what's best for Canada, we may not all have the best uh, ideas or the same ideas, but generally we all have really great intentions. So let's respect each other and have conversations uh, about the actual data. And uh, I think eventually the truth kind of bubbles up and, um, and we've certainly seen that over, over the course of our history. For many years, the Atlantic Institute of Market Studies was the region's think tank on public policy issues. In July of 2020, uh, Ames merged with the Fraser Institute. And for disclosure purposes, I was a member of the Ames Board of Directors at that time. Uh, Could I just ask you, what what was attractive about the merger for you uh, with Ames? Yeah, thanks, Don. And uh, I'm not going to ask you whether you supported the merger or or not, but... uh... Uh, you know, obviously, um, I, I think the, the, the Ames board was really supportive of the merger. The Fraser Institute board was really summer, uh, really uh, supportive of the merger. Our, our primary goal in merging was just simply to enhance the important work that Ames had done for 20 years. I mean, you had a regional think tank uh, that, that I think has a really great brand and name and reputation and in many ways struggles with the 
the same kind of things that other smaller think tanks struggle with. Uh, and so we know we saw an opportunity based on what we had done in other provinces um, that you had a regional uh, operation with boots on the ground, really thinking through the critical issue on the ground issues in Atlantic Canada, but just didn't have the same research heft and marketing heft that an organization like the Fraser Institute has. Like we have scale that other smaller think tanks don't have. And I'll tell you, one of the biggest changes in my 20 year career in think tanks has been the way we communicate our work. You know, when I started at the Fraser Institute, you did a serious piece of research and you, the communication team, which at the Fraser Institute at that time was one person, wrote a press release, you issued it to the media and, and you waited for the media to contact you. And that was how you got your message out. Today, you know, we all know that communication is very different. You have to be very active in marketing. You have to be digital. You have to be on social media. You have to do videos. You have to do comics. You have to be on podcasts. You know, today at the Fraser Institute, our, our marketing and communications team is nearly 10 people, and we're adding to that. Uh, and so for smaller think tanks, it's just it's hard to get that scale. And so, um, you know, we saw an opportunity and AIM saw an opportunity to really unify two great organizations and uh, develop uh, the best. And, and I think so far, uh, we've, we've seen that uh, the sum has been been much greater than the two parts. So I think initial indications are this has been a really successful merger. And um, I think the best is still to come, uh, to be quite frank, Don. Uh, by the way, I did support the merger. Uh, can you provide our listeners with a better understanding of how uh, that merger benefits public policy research in Atlantic Canada? Every Every region in Canada provincially, regionally, I would think even municipally faces different local issues. I mean, there's a lot of similarities uh, between uh, policy across Canada, you know, healthcare challenges, education challenges, taxation challenges, but each region is slightly different. And so uh, to, to me, when you have when you have people, locals on the ground, boots on the ground, really identifying the uniqueness of uh, what the, the challenges are in each of the regions, um, that's that's really uh, critically important. So we have now obviously taken over Ames's office. We have uh, four researchers now uh, in our Halifax office. Um, we have uh, board members uh, from uh, from the region. And so we're, we, we're really discussing the issues that the region is facing. And then we're able to use the heft of the Fraser Institute in terms of our research capabilities, our stable of, of senior fellows, um, which is almost 90 strong now of, of, of academics at, uh, at universities, our internal research, our marketing and communications um, to, to take those issues and really study them and then, and then communicate them. So, you know, I, I look at what Ames was able to do pre-merger and the first year after the merger, uh, you know, we've we've increased, substantially increased the amount of research uh, that we're able to do in the region. We've substantially increased the amount of attention that we're getting in the media, digitally on social media, through through our web presence. Uh, and so I, I think this has been a huge win-win uh, for, uh, for the country because, look, what's the win for the Fraser Institute? Well, first, we have a, a much more dynamic and a much more impactful regional think tank uh, in Atlantic Canada. And every part of the country is important. And we can't have a strong country if there are parts and regions of our country that are substantially uh, below other parts of the country in terms of standard of living. I, I really think in order to have a strong country, we need to have 
a strong country, a strong, uh, a, a, a strong outcomes across the country. And uh, I think that's ultimately what uh, we're hoping to produce in Atlantic Canada. Well, that's a nice segue to my next question. <laughs> you have indicated the initiated the Atlantic Canada Prosperity Project following the, the merger with Ames. Can you outline what the purpose and, and the importance of the Atlantic Canada Prosperity Project uh, is all about, and maybe provide some examples of the early work to support this initiative. Yeah, so our, our, our goal in Atlantic Canada is the same as our goal for Canada as a whole. Let, let's make the region the most prosperous region uh, in Canada, and let's make Canada the most prosperous country in the world. Let's have the highest standard of living. And, um, you know, one of the goals for us right now uh, in Atlantic Canada is for the region to catch up with the rest of Canada. You know, one of the first studies, uh, actually the first study we did post-merger was called just that. It was called Catching Up with Canada, a Prosperity Agenda for Atlantic Canada. And, you know, there's some unfortunate gaps. Uh, you know, you, if you just look at GDP, um, you know, uh, the size of our economy on, on a per-person basis, the gap between Atlantic Canada and the rest of Canada is almost $10,000 per person. You know, if you look at household income, uh, it's 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 forty five hundred dollars per household. That's the gap. You know, if you're if you think about how much forty five hundred dollars can purchase in terms of standard of living, it's very significant. And uh, you can say the same thing about the employment rate. The employment rate in Atlantic Canada uh, is is materially lower than the rest of Canada. And so one of the things one of our goals is to create debate in Atlantic Canada to get rid of that gap. Let's have Atlantic Canada catch up with Canada, but I, I I would say let's let's even go one step further. Let's see if we can't make Atlantic Canada the most prosperous place in Canada, and not just prosperous economically. Like and as I said right from the beginning, standard of living is not just economic. I mean, economics is the base. The economy is the base that pays for all the kind of things that we want. There's there's no question that the richer a jurisdiction is. The more money you have to spend on healthcare, the more money you have to spend on education, the more you can do to improve environmental outcomes. And so that's why economics is such a core part of what we do. But the standard of living really encompasses all those other things that I mentioned. And uh, there's some great examples across the world, across North America, in the US, and even in Canada, we'll talk about Saskatchewan in, in a little while. But you know, I look at Ireland, uh, I look at Michigan, as examples for Atlantic Canada. Like this is catching up with Canada is not going to happen in one year. But over a decade, if you can just slightly increase the growth rate of the economy above Canada, Atlantic Canada can catch up. I mean, Ireland is a wonderful example in Europe how it was able to massively increase its growth rate and catch up with the rest of Europe. Michigan in in uh, in, in the United States had uh, been on the decline for decades. It has gone through a fundamental reform and has massively increased its growth rates. And so, you know, it's not it's not as though Atlantic Canada has to do something that's hugely unique in the world. It can look to other jurisdictions who were behind, who were losing young, talented entrepreneurial people to other jurisdictions and learn from those regions and reform uh, and in many ways become, become beacons of hope and opportunity. And, that's what we want to do in Atlantic Canada. And so everything that we do is, is focused on that goal from our economic research, healthcare research, education research, environmental research. Uh, it's, it's all with the goal of um, how does Atlantic Canada, Canada catch up and how does it uh, become a beacon of hope and opportunity within Canada? 
I would like to focus on three specific reports that have been released in, I think, the last six months that are focused on Atlantic Canada, starting with the fiscal lessons for Atlantic Canada from Saskatchewan. In that report, the Institute outlines the unsustainability of debts and deficits in the region and draws on the experience of the province of Saskatchewan that went through a similar period of I guess, fiscal uncertainty, uh, um, and we're able to turn their prospects around actually rather, rather quickly. What are the lessons for the region from Saskatchewan's experience, Niles? Yeah, well, thanks, Don. I, I, um, I guess you're going to test me here on how well I remember our research. So uh, <laughs> yeah, here we go. No, Saskatchewan is, is really a unique case. And in a lot of ways, uh, it, it's got some great lessons for Atlantic Canada. Uh, I, I did a lot of work in Saskatchewan in the early part of my career, going going back 20 years ago. And Saskatchewan had many of the same challenges uh, that Atlanta, Canada has. Um, you know, it, it had an out-migration uh, of its young, talented uh, workforce. I think that's probably the number one worrying trend uh, that, uh, that, that you see in jurisdictions that are struggling. When young, talented people leave for opportunities elsewhere, you know something is very, very, very wrong. And Atlanta, Canada has experienced massive net out migration uh, over the course of the last 20 years. It's something that we're going to be uh, uh, releasing some data on uh, in uh, in the next couple of weeks. And, and Saskatchewan had the same thing uh, for 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 25 years. Saskatchewan had net out migration, you know, over 115,000. Saskatchewanians left uh, for other jurisdictions, primarily Alberta and Ontario. And, and by the way, the same th- same two places capture 75% of the Atlantic Canadians that leave uh, for, for better opportunity. Saskatchewan almost also went bankrupt. Uh, in, the, in the early 1990s, they had difficulty selling their bonds. And what was interesting is uh, Roy Romano, uh, an NDP, uh, by the way, uh, NDP government uh, was elected in 1991 and had to deal with this very serious a fiscal situation. And Janice McKinnon, uh, who was a finance minister at the time, they put forth a plan. And it wasn't a plan of, of hope and wishes, Don. It was a, a real plan to, uh, to change the direction of the province. And the first thing they did was attack the fiscal side. I mean, this was a government that was almost bankrupt. And so if you want to change all of the other stuff, if you want to become more competitive, if you want, if you want to take care of, of, your, of your sick, if you want to educate uh, you're young. You have to deal with the fiscal side uh, of uh, of government, and they had obviously uh, a real problem: massive debt, massive deficits. They had trouble selling bonds. They they were almost going to have to uh, have the federal government step in. And what they did was uh, went through uh, a real serious review of government. You know, how do you how do you make government smarter? How do you uh, peel off things that are best done in the private sector? How do you consolidate? Um, how do you become more efficient? And lo and behold, they, they, they went through quite a significant reduction in government spending, 12% over the course of two years, and they balanced their books in three years. I mean, this wasn't a decade to change the fiscal trajectory of Saskatchewan. This was, let's put in place a plan, let's attack this, this like, like any family that has a, a, a serious fiscal problem or a serious spending problem, you have to attack the root of the problem and they attack spending and they balance the budget in three years. And what the NDP government did after that is that created a, a fiscal surplus. They were then able to say, well, let's have a look at our tax system. Let's make our, our province more competitive. 
So in 2005, they had a personal income tax uh, review uh, headed by uh, Michael Vick, and they uh, they fundamentally changed the the nature of their of their tax system. And then they went through a business tax review as well and went and fundamentally reduced uh, reduced uh, business uh, taxes. And, and, and I have to make a correction. It was Jack Vick, uh, not Michael Vick, the football player that did the, uh, the tax review. Uh, but Jack, Jack Vick's review really uh, reformed, massively reformed Saskatchewan. So here you have an NDP government, which has typically been big spend, high tax government, and they fundamentally changed into more efficient government, balanced budgets, creating surpluses, reducing income taxes on investment, on inc- on personal income, on business. And they made Saskatchewan a much better place to invest. And you know what changed? That fundamentally changed the trajectory of Saskatchewan. And I know the, the, the Sask party and Brad Wall in particular, they get a lot of credit for um, for the turnaround in Saskatchewan. But much of the hard work was done by the NDP government there. And in fact, what the NDP government did there did in the early 1990s was in many ways copied by the federal government uh, of, um, of Jean Chrétien and Paul Martin when they reformed in 1995. So it really set off a wave. So, I, you know, that's a long-winded way of saying, uh, Don, uh, Atlantic Canada doesn't have to look that far for real examples about how to change the policies for the better. They can just look at Saskatchewan and learn some really important lessons. Uh, and, you know, I don't want to I don't want to make it sound like it was easy because it's not. You know, when you're when you have to consolidate and you have to deal with public sector uh, compensation and you have to deal with overspending in, in the hospital sector. I mean, these are hard decisions, really tough decisions, but you have to make hard decisions to get ahead. Uh, and that's what uh, Atlantic Canada has to do. Uh, and so I really recommend we, we did a study on Saskatchewan on the fiscal crisis. Uh, you know, I recommend your listeners uh, read that. Uh, I think uh, there's some really important lessons. And uh, if they're so inclined, there's international lessons as well. So, um, you know, I, I, I think the, the direction is there for Atlantic Canada to take. But you need leadership in order to take it. You need a uh, you need a, a public that understands that the nature of the problem. And part of that is what we're trying to do. We're, we're trying to educate Atlantic Canadians that there is a substantial problem, and but there are there are real life solutions. And these are not just theoretical solutions. These are solutions that have been done in other provinces, and um, they've reversed the out migration. They've reversed the uh, the gap in prosperity between themselves and, and the rest of Canada, and that's what we hope for Atlantic Canada. Well, in our region, as you know, uh, Newfoundland and Labrador are probably the closest to where Saskatchewan was in the early um, 90s. They're in a very bad fiscal shape. The federal government recently announced more than $5 billion of support uh, in an effort to help the province deal with the cost overruns of Muskrat Falls, that we're going to probably double the cost of electricity for uh, residents in the province. Um, This is not enough, I don't think, to deal with the fiscal challenges. What more needs to be done, in your opinion, to address what's happening and what what clearly is still a crisis situation in Newfoundland and Labrador? Yeah, no, no question about that, uh, Don. Uh, it is a crisis situation, and the federal government's $5 billion is, is not going to uh, alleviate uh, that crisis situation. You know, when it comes to Muskrat Falls, uh, there, there's there's been there's been just a 
a long history of academic work, which has looked at massive, uh, massive infrastructure uh, programs that were um, funded and executed by government. And, and most of these have massive overruns. So Muskrat Falls is, is not unique in, in that sense. We've got our own case here in British Columbia with, with, with Site C. Um, but apart from that, uh, Newfoundland still has a, 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 a really massive problem, in many ways the same thing that Saskatchewan has had. And you're not going to deal with that by raising taxes. That's the, that's the easy thing for politicians to say is that we just need more money to solve this. And I always, you know, whenever I can, I, I take public policy back to the household. If in your household or in my household, we were spending uh, 25% more than we were bringing in, we know what the end result would be. You know, we might be able to do that for a little while. We might be able to rack up some credit card debt. We might have a line of credit. But eventually, eventually we're going to have to deal with the root cause of the problem, which is spending. And that's what Newfoundland and Labrador have to do. They have to deal with the spending side of, uh, of the equation. And, you know, the, the, the Great Reset, I think the, the, the recent report that was the, the Green Report that was released, uh, I think has some great ideas. There's some ideas that I don't agree with, of course. Uh, and just, by the way, in terms of influence, uh, uh, the Atlantic Institute for Market Studies and the Fraser Institute were referenced 19 times in the Green Report. So uh, clearly they've, they've taken some of our research uh, and some of our recommendations and have put it in the, into the report. Um, but this is a, a fundamental rethink of, of government. It, it, it is going to have to be about uh, dealing with overspending in government, looking at programs which should be eliminated, which are best done in the private sector, looking at uh, public sector compensation. Uh, you know, you have a, a public sector that if you look at comparable jobs in the private sector, um, the public sector is getting paid almost 12% more just on wages, never mind the benefits. Like I, I am all for uh, having having a healthy public sector and having that that public sector be well compensated. But you can't have a public sector that gets 12 uh, percent higher wages than comparable jobs in the private sector and all these extra benefits uh, and then ask the, the private sector to pay for it. That is not sustainable, particularly when uh, the majority of your spending, I mean, 55 percent of, of provincial spending is is on on compensation. So there's some tough choices that have to be made. Um, but again, I, you know, you look at Saskatchewan, Saskatchewan made tough choices. They went through uh, a couple of tough years and they balanced their budget in three years. And then it was about, okay, now how do we fix the investment climate, the tax system? And all of that led to much higher growth rates. All of that led to uh, turning around the net migration. You know, for years in Saskatchewan, young people would leave the place they wanted to call home the place where their families were, the place that they were tied to, a place that actually offered some pretty attractive lifestyle uh, choices, and they left for other jurisdictions. And when Saskatchewan turned around its investment climate, people started to come back. Young people started to come back. Entrepreneurs started to come back. And that's kind of the hope that we want for Newfoundland, Labrador, the rest of Atlantic Canada. So it can be done, uh, but, it, but it's not going to be easy. And um, it's, it's going to require a real fundamental rethink of, of uh, you know, over 30 years now of, 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 of bad, uh, bad government financial decisions. Another recent study uh, focused on Atlantic Canada's precarious public finances. Bit of a theme here. The study indicates that without uh, policy changes, the four Atlantic provinces will face rising debt to GDP ratios over time. 
as well. High tax rates within the region provide challenges to raise revenues to cover increasing debt interest payments. Recently, at least in the three Atlantic provinces, there has been a significant uh, population growth that, that might help economic growth and, and increase the tax base uh, within the region. How does this population growth impact your conclusions in this study? Yeah, so Don, I, I don't want to fixate too much on the fiscal side. We spent a lot of time talking about government spending and, and balancing the budget. I think that's really one core component of how you create a, a robust economic and investment climate. Because if you have high debt, if you have high deficits and high and high debt, then people don't know what the future holds in terms of taxes, right? And and I think you're seeing that across Canada, by the way, right now. You know, we have you have people talking about wealth taxes and capital gains taxes, and that just sends kind of red alerts to businesses. So, having a balanced budget and having an efficient and reasonably sized government is kind of a it's a really important part of creating a robust investment climate, but yeah, you have to have uh, reasonable and 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 uh, taxes. You can't have overburdensome taxes. You have, same thing on the regulatory front. You know, you can't have too much red tape or or red tape that really attacks entrepreneurship and investment. And so, creating a robust investment climate, creating a robust economic climate is is more than just the fiscal side of things. And so, uh, I'll, I'll say that uh, right up front. We could talk a little bit more about that. Uh, you know. There has been some population growth, uh, of course, in in uh, in Atlantic Canada in certain provinces, the maritime provinces, uh, and that has been better than uh, the previous decades. Uh, but you know that's largely due to immigration, and that's largely due to a reduced outflow to other provinces, particularly Alberta. So, is it positive? I I would say yeah, I, I, it is, but. Uh, I, I wouldn't celebrate that. Um, I, I think Atlantic Canada still has a fundamental issue that e even when, you know, because I, I take immigration out and I say, uh, let, let's actually look at what the people in the region are doing. That's why interprovincial migration is so important because you can have a huge inflow of immigrants, but once they're there for five years, if they then go to other provinces for, for greater opportunity, you're not really doing your province uh, any good if you're just replenishing that every every five years. So that's why I tend to look at interprovincial migration because I think it tells us more about the state of the, the province or the region than it does if you include immigration. So uh, it's kind of nuanced, Don, but I, but I think that distinction is, is really important. And uh, there, there's no question that Atlantic Canada has, has, has witnessed massive out-migration uh, over the course of the last uh, two decades. And that's really what I think the attention has to be, has to be on. Uh, and the only way that you stop that is by creating wonderful opportunities for young, skilled, educated, hardworking uh, people in the region. So uh, again, the, 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 that, that robust economy is, has to be, the, has to be the, the core thing, in my view, uh, that is going to fundamentally change Atlantic Canada. And Atlantic Canada has a lot of work to do on all aspects of creating that robust economy. It has a lot of work to do on the regulatory burden. It has a lot of work to do on having competitive uh, tax rates personally and and on investment and it has a lot of work to do on uh, on ensuring that it has a stable uh, set of, of government finances uh, and so lots of work to do Don but uh, but I, I really am, I, I remain optimistic I look at other regions whether it's Saskatchewan Michigan or even Canada as a whole uh, you know we don't forget that that in you know and I think young Canadians forget this 
But in 1995, the Wall Street Journal called Canada an honorary member of the third world. They called all our dollar the Canadian peso. The title of their editorial was Canada bankrupt. Like we were a fiscal basket case of a country in 1995. Fast forward just a little over a decade ago, sorry, a decade after that, and heading into the Great Recession, Canada, Canada was the shining example of how you do everything right <laughs> when the recession hit. What changed? Well, in that decade, we fundamentally changed our whole country when it, when it came to its finances. Paul Martin and, and Jean Chrétien, cheered on by the Reform Party, of course, fundamentally changed federal finances. The NDP government in Saskatchewan fundamentally changed provincial finances. Conservatives in Ontario and Alberta fundamentally changed uh, their finances. And Liberals in British Columbia did the same thing. So one of the really great things about Canada in the mid-1990s to the mid-2000s is you had policy federally and across all the provinces move in the same direction by, by governments of dramatically different political stripes. And we've, if, you, if your listeners are interested, we, we've written a book on this and we call the, the book's called the, the Chrétien Consensus because there was a consensus across Canada about how you structure your government finances, about how you create a robust investment climate, and it had nothing to do with politics. And that's, that's why I love this story. This is, not, this is nothing to do with politics, Don. This has to do with getting policy right, and it can be done by any, any party, regardless, regardless of who it is, it can be done, uh, and it should be done if, if they're truly interested in, in the best interests of, uh, of their region, and, and, and in the case of the federal government, uh, in the best interest of Canadians broadly. The final study deals with the topic of fiscal federalism and the dependency of Atlantic Canada. Uh, coincidentally, I recently authored a topic on this very topic, <laughs> a column on this topic. Uh, what are the main conclusions of this study? Yeah, and, and congratulations on, on the column, Don. I mean, I just think it's so important to talk about these, uh, about the, these sorts of issues. And, um, you know, dependency is... Uh, economic dependency is a real problem. It's a real problem in households. You know, none of none of you and I, you, you know, I, I don't want my daughter to be economically dependent on me. I want her to stand on her own two feet. I want her to do better than me. And I'm probably sure she will. And I hope that I'll be cheering her on. Just like my parents. My parents were immigrants to this country, came with four young kids in 1981. They want their kids to do better than them. And the same thing works for, for provinces. We don't want to create a culture of dependency in any region with respect to any program. But unfortunately, we have done that. We have done that with the equalization program. We have done that with programs like employment insurance, and it is not healthy. That's not to say that we can't have programs in place that help juris jurisdictions that are struggling. I, I think all Canadians would accept that. But just like they accept that we want to, they want that they want a, a employment insurance system or a welfare system, but we don't want to create dependency where, first, you rely on that for for long, long periods of time, and secondly, it perverts your own policies, so that you don't change the current trajectory of of your economy because you're afraid you might lose equalization payments, and and that's really what we have done in Canada now, and. 
the reason, one of the reasons we, we wrote this study is that the system of, of equalization has relied on, in particular, on Alberta doing very, very well. And that has changed. And if that continues to change, that whole system is in a lot of trouble. Um, so first off, I, I think we need to deal with the dependency of Atlantic Canada. And second of all, I, I think Atlantic Canadians should be should be worried right now that um, that system is is going to be in a lot of trouble because Alberta isn't doing as well as it did historically. Uh, so lots of great information in the study uh, in terms of, of how dependency hinders growth uh, and, in all kinds of perverse uh, ways. Um, and in particular, uh, what do we see in Atlantic Canada? We see very, very high rates of federal transfers. I mean, federal transfers in Atlantic Canada make up 25% of Atlantic Canada's economy. That is hugely substantial. And it perverts the policies in Atlantic Canada. So Atlantic Canada's not improving its tax system generally, not improving its regulatory system generally, not dealing with its fiscal situation generally. Uh, and so uh, I, I think things really need to change. And um, one, of the, one of the great things that Saskatchewan again has shown is um, that you can you can move from being dependent on federal transfers uh, to being a contributor uh, to uh, to programs like equalization, and um, that's sort of the mindset that I think needs that needs to change um, in places like uh, Atlantic Canada. Well, you know, interestingly, we don't really talk about becoming a have region. Generally speaking, it's a topic that is not discussed. Uh, I think there's been only one government in my career that uh, actually focused on that was the Sean Graham government, the Liberal government in uh, New Brunswick. And at that time, um, there was a vast support among the population for achieving that goal because, you know what, Atlantic Canadians don't want to be a have-not region, the individuals at least. So, you know, uh, I think the politicians need to catch up with uh, where the population is on that. Uh, just to conclude this section, uh, what policy changes are necessary for Atlantic Canada to deal with the risk of the impending renegotiation uh, of equalizations, which I think there'll be a lot of pressure to change the uh, deal based on the problems that Alberta's economy is facing? Yeah, the, you're, you're right. I think there will be a lot of pressure. And I think you're you're also seeing Alberta kind of fed up with um, fed up with with not getting support uh, uh, from from I think what it deems to be other Canadians. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of other programs that are that are propped up by Alberta. And I'll just give you the Canadian pension plan. You know, if Alberta opts out of the Canadian pension plan. Uh, the whole plan is in serious trouble because Alberta is richer and younger than the other provinces. And so contribution rates would go down in Alberta if it had its own plan and contribution rates in the rest of the country would have to increase significantly or Ontario would have to be uh, carrying the burden. So I think there's lots of things for Atlantic Canada to think through and it's not just equalization. I mean, we, we might get some, some, some uh, real hiccups here if Alberta decides to move on, on the, opting out of the, the Canada pension plan. So yeah, there's lots of things for, for Atlantic Canada to, to think through. Uh, the base of this though, is the economy. You, you can't, you can't fix, uh, uh, dependency issues. If you're not, if you're not at least willing to strive for changing the trajectory of the growth rates. Uh, and so it really all comes back to the things that you and I have already talked about. It's, you have to deal with your finances and uh, you have to deal with the tax system. You have to deal with the regulatory uh, burden. 
And only if you do those things are you going to have a successful economy. Are you going to be able to dig yourself out of this? And I think smaller provinces uh, have just a harder time doing this than, than larger provinces. I mean, policy is that much more important. Like you think of Ireland. Ireland was able to put itself on the map, not because it tinkered at the margins. No, because it fundamentally changed the trajectory of its investment climate. And Saskatchewan did the same thing. You know, it's one thing if you're Ontario with, with a massive economy uh, and, you you know, you can kind of tinker at the edges. But I, I think something dramatic has to happen in, in Atlantic Canada. Uh, and I think it really needs to sharply deal with these issues uh, and, and do so and really put itself on a map and say, hey, look, we are open for business. Like it needs to have the sticker right on there. Right. And, and to do that, you, you can't I don't think you can tinker at the margins. We're almost out of time, Niles. There's one other question I just thought I'd end with. Uh, can you give our listeners a preview of your future poli- public policy research that might be in the works for Atlanta, Canada? What, what, what should we be looking for? Yeah, so it's it, it's going to be centered. Um, you know, a big part of what we'll do is on the economy and how, how do you change economic policy. We'll highlight some of the some of the major problems uh, in Atlanta, Canada. Out migration, I really think, is one of the big ones. Um, how do you fix it? Uh, so we, we've got some work coming out on the tax structure. We've got some specific solutions uh, on uh, for each province on the on the fiscal government spending side, uh, healthcare, uh, and there's a big opportunity here for healthcare. Um, certainly in Nova Scotia, where I think that was a, a one of the differentiating conversations in the election. Um, so how do you actually look? With Nova Scotia, I think has a great opportunity to uh, to change healthcare. And really set an example for the rest of the country. Wouldn't that be wonderful if it set an example for the rest of the country about how um, you you develop a more efficient healthcare system? So we'll be doing work on healthcare. We've got some work coming out on education. So th- again, that the, the way that we look at the world is to say, you know, what government policies are going to improve the standard of living of Atlantic Canadians? And there's no question that the economy, healthcare, and education probably are, are the biggest components of creating that, uh, creating that standard of living that we all, we all strive for. Well, Niels, this has been a great conversation. Thank you for being on the Insights Podcast and best wishes in your continued efforts to keep Atlantic Canadians informed about the public policy challenges and opportunities that we face. Well, thanks for having me on, Don. And, and let me again say, I, I just think it's wonderful that you continue uh, to, to share your own opinions, uh, share data, and keep the, the conversation alive uh, and well and, and keep debate alive and well. And I, and, and I think really that's the, that's the first step is um, let's get the problems out there, let's debate the problems, uh, and let's find the best solutions. Well, again, thanks a lot, Neil. All the best. You've been listening to the latest episode of Insights on the Huddle Podcast Network. Mark Legere and Tyler McLean helped produce this episode. You can subscribe to the show by searching for Huddle Insights on podcast platforms like Apple and Spotify. And if you've enjoyed listening, please give the show a rating and a review. Don and David will be back again next week.